right, we are going to get started. This is Cultivating Contentment. You will need a Bible. You can turn with me to Exodus 16. I have become, the last couple years, a pretty big fan of Hamilton, the hit Broadway show. Any other ham fams out there? Yes. See, Hamilton, I think I want to suggest to you this morning that Hamilton is a story about contentment. And whether you're a big ham fam like me or not, it is a helpful way to understand contentment. See, Hamilton is the staggering theatrical retelling of the life of Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton is the man who, quote, never will be satisfied. He's ambitious and he's driven. And he drives himself upward from an obscure life as an orphan in a remote island to being a revolutionary war hero, hero, an architect of the Constitution and the first secretary of the Treasury. See, his ambition drives his career forward, but it has devastating consequences for his personal life. See, Alexander's married to his wonderful, kind wife, Elizabeth. And over and over again, on on Alexander's drive upward, his wife, Alexander, his wife, Elizabeth, continually reminds him to come back, to come home to the quiet, simple life. But he refuses to heed her call and continues to push himself further and further and further. And then one moment of extreme moral failure, he begins a prolonged affair with a prostitute. He forsakes the wife of his youth and shacks up with a prostitute. And the details of this affair become widely published. His name is utterly ruined. His political prospects are gone and his marriage is destroyed. You see, it's a story of a man who will never be satisfied, learning through suffering and failure to find satisfaction in the wife of his youth. What has struck me so much about this story it is, is that it is so similar to the Christian story. God takes discontented and unsatisfied people and teaches them to be satisfied in him. The text we're going to look at this morning is from the Old Testament book of Exodus. I'm a big fan of this book. And as we're going to look at it in detail, and we're going to see this morning how true this story of discontentment is for the Israelite people. The Israelite people were God's people who had been freed from slavery, but who struggled to live rightly with God. They were a people who fell in love with God, but their hearts had been turned to other gods. And the challenge for them is that they needed to keep their hearts on God. The tragedy for them is that they often failed to do this. And that tragedy, I think, is true for you and me. Christians, we often grow dissatisfied and discontent with our Savior, with the lover of our souls, and we wander on to other things, don't we? We leave our first love to find other loves in this world. And the glorious good news of this text is this, that God sustains his discontented people and teaches them to daily depend on him. God sustains his discontented people and teaches them to daily depend on him. 
It's my prayer and hope in our brief moments together that as we reflect on who God is and what he does, that we will leave this room with a deeper sense of contentment because of what God has done. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you would be with us this morning. Would you help us to cultivate a radically countercultural contentment? A contentment that can't be found in the ways of this world, but is only found in a God who satisfies dissatisfied people, like the people who are under the sound of my voice. God, help us to be more satisfied in you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Exodus 16. We're going to read just the first 20 verses. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they are to bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it Till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. A couple of things we're going to see as we walk through this passage together. They're printed for you on your outline on page 42. Three things. 
First, this text is gonna show us the problem of our discontentment. Then it's gonna show us the kindness of God's provision. And finally, it will give us the choice to be satisfied. First, let's consider the problem of discontentment. Look at verse one with me. They set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. The Israelites are in the wilderness of sin. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a place I would try to avoid. Right? We read this and think, wilderness of sin, let's stay away from there. But we need to remember that that's not how the first century readers would have understood this. Right? They didn't know what it meant yet. This is prior to sin being known as sin. And what Israel is going to do here is going to, in some ways, define sin. If I were to tell you that there was a certain place that would forever be known for the wickedness that was done there, what kind of evil behavior would you think of? Maybe you'd think of sexual immorality, murder, drunkenness, I don't know. After all, in the United States, we have a city called Sin City, right? What's it known for? Sin, yes, absolutely. What kinds of sin, right? Think about it for a moment. Sexual immorality, gambling, drunkenness, an abundance of vulgarity, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, which is not true, but that's what they say, right? It's known for, to be a place that men particularly can commit adultery. That's why they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's obviously not true and immoral and evil. And that's what this city is known for. And that's what, maybe if you're like me, you tend to think of when you would think of sin city. But look here in the text at how Israel's sin is described. Verse two, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. Jump down to verse seven. He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that, we, that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Eight different times in this text, the word grumbling is mentioned. The sin that in one sense gives sin its name is grumbling. That is shocking to me. Perhaps it, was, it is shocking to you. My guess is if I had you make a list of most wicked sins, grumbling wouldn't even make the list. But it does seem to make God's. One commentator writes that the Hebrew word here for grumbling, it's designed, not designed to express a disgruntled complaint. Quite the contrary, it describes an open rebellion. When the people murmured against Moses, it was mutiny against Almighty God, end quote. You see, the text is here saying that grumbling, it's not a little frustration, it's not disappointment but it is open rebellion. It is mutiny against the living, holy God. Grumbling is saying to God, if I ran the universe, God, I would run it better. Consider, are you a grumbling person? Are you a discontented person? How well do you do when life does not go according to your plan? If you're anything like me, you do not do very well. 
you get frustrated, angry. Perhaps you dive down into wallow or despair. Recently, I was scheduled to teach at a conference of over 100 high school students. Uh, The conference topic was, how can I know I'm saved? And I was getting ready early in the morning. And as I'm getting ready, I'm about to turn off the shower handle. And as I turn off the shower handle, off comes the handle. (laughs) And gushing into the bathtub comes gallons and gallons of water that I cannot stop. So I ran downstairs as fast as I can, which is not very fast. And I got as many tools as I could and tried with all my might to try to fix this problem. But nothing worked. I didn't really know tools. I used a hammer and pliers, all these different things. None of it helped very much. I was frustrated and upset. And let me tell you honestly what I said to God in that moment. I said, Lord, where are you? Here I am trying to serve you. And you seem to be nowhere to be found. God, I'm trying to serve you and you don't seem to care. God, help me. Why aren't you helping me? You see, when push came to shove, when my plan went awry, I spoke to the Lord in anger. I rebelled. I wasn't merely upset. I wasn't disappointed. I was shaking my fist at the God of heaven. See, God has given me everything I could ever long for. He's given me a beautiful family, a wonderful job, great people to work with. And all it took for me to shake my fist at God was a broken faucet. That's it. My guess is many of you are like me and like Israel. When your plans go off the rails, it is easy for you to grumble against God. It's so easy, isn't it? We need you and I to recognize our grumbling for what it is. It's not trivial. It's not light. But it is open rebellion against the God of the universe who's given you every good and perfect gift. In this passage, we don't only see the problem of our discontentment, contentment, the severe problem. We do see that, but we also see kind of the diagnosis of that problem. What is it that causes discontentment? Look with me at verse three. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, a couple of contextual points here. First, we should note, it is very unlikely that Israel was starving. They had fairly recently come out of Egypt, and when they came out of Egypt, they'd plundered Egypt. So they had probably plenty of food, but they were probably tired of eating the same thing over and over and over again. And they look back and they remember the meat pots and the bread that they ate to the full, which is probably not true because they were slaves in Egypt, but never mind that. You see, the problem for Israel is this. They have a misdiagnosed appetite. You see, they think their problem is a lack of physical nourishment. But as we will see in this text, physical nourishment alone will never satisfy. They have an overdeveloped taste for temporary things, for things that will not last. I recently came across an article in Time magazine that stopped me in my tracks. 
The title of it is this, How Winning the Lottery Makes You Miserable. It tells the tragic story of people whose dreams came true. Dreams came true, and their dreams came true, and it ruined their lives. One example is Jack Whitaker. Jack was 55 years old when he won the Powerball. Four years later, he was broke. He'd lost a daughter and a granddaughter to drug overdose, which he blamed on the Powerball win. Listen to what he says. My granddaughter is dead because of the money. You know, my wife has said she wished that she had torn up the ticket. Well, I wish I had torn up the ticket too. He wishes he had torn up the winning ticket. Several months later, after winning the lottery, Jack Whitaker was robbed of more than half a million dollars while sitting in his car at a strip club. His final words in this article are shocking. Here's what he says. I just don't like Jack Whitaker. I don't like this hard heart I've got. I don't like what I've become. You see, no amount of money can satisfy a human heart. It's not what the heart was made for. And you and I have an overdeveloped appetite for temporary things, don't we? But there is no amount of temporary things that will satisfy our souls. How much stuff will be enough? What GPA will be enough for you? How much career sex success will be enough? At what point will you feel like, feel like you finally made it? It will never be enough. How much sex and pornography will be enough? It will never satisfy. How much victory in a video game will be enough? It will never satisfy. It will never be enough. You see, grumbling is caused by an overdeveloped taste for temporary things, for a longing for things that will not satisfy us at the deepest level. And the Israelites' appetite for temporary things leads God to make a staggering assessment in this text. Look at verse 12. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Catch this. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You see that? These saved people of God who've been brought out of Egypt seem to not really know God not saying here that they're not saved, but it does seem like the saved people of God don't really know the God of their salvation. It is possible to be a saved person, but to not know deeply the character of the God who saved you. See, when we grumble against God, when we reject his plan and furiously cling to our own, we demonstrate that we do not know God as well as we think. It reveals to us that we don't really grasp the beauty, the goodness, and the kindness of the character of God. The problem of our discontentment is serious. It is a rebellion against the saving, loving, all-perfect God of the universe. And it is caused by an overdeveloped taste for the temporary things of this world. And it demonstrates the reality that we do not often understand the character of God as well as we should. We see the problem of discontentment, but we also see in this text the solution of God's provision. 
At this point in the story, God would be justified in smiting and destroying his sinful people. They have already sinned. He he saved them, but they have already rebelled. But instead of judging them, he attempts to woo them, to persuade them, to find their satisfaction in him. And he does this in three ways in the text. God provides daily. God provides through his presence and God provides lavishly. Look with me first at um, how God provides daily. Look at verse four and five. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Do you notice what God did here? This is interesting. God set it up that every day he would provide for the people. Hmm. God could have done it however he wanted to, right? He could have given them an everlasting supply of food that would have perfectly nourished them forever. He could have given them a fridge full of food, but he doesn't. Notice how he provides daily. Well, we, why does he do this? It's because God is after more than satisfying their physical appetites. He's after a deeper spiritual reality. The text shows us this. God even says he does this to, verse four, test them. God in his provision has a profound teaching goal. He wants people, his people, to daily depend on him. God providentially provides in order that we would learn to daily depend on him. You see, in abundance, it is so easy to forget God, isn't it? To trust in ourselves. When our bank accounts are full, when our pantries are loaded with stuff. In abundance, it's easy to forget God and even take credit for the things God has given. God is teaching us here not to rely on ourselves, not to rely on our full fridges or our full bank accounts. No, God wants us to trust in him every day to provide. That's why Jesus says in the Lord's prayer that we should ask the Lord to give us our daily bread. God wants to provide physically in order that we would learn to daily depend upon him. When I was in college, we had a wonderful, amazing dining hall. I loved going to the dining hall on campus. It was great. But there was something even better than the dining hall, far better in every way. And that was coming home at the end of a semester for a lovely, delightful home-cooked meal. Some of you know what that's like. There was something different about it. You see, I had great food on campus. It was delicious. But there was something different about the dining hall from the dining room table. It was this, that at the dining hall, they make all the food generally for everybody. They don't know anything about me. But at the dining room table, my mom specially and thoughtfully crafted food she thought I would like. Ribs and mac and cheese. Steak with garlic butter. Chicken parmesan. It just, mmm. You see, the food was amazing. It was delicious, and my mom can really cook. But the food tasted better for one reason primarily. You see, it had been made lovingly and graciously for me. 
Do you realize, brothers and sisters in Christ, that every bite of food you eat does not come to you generally or vaguely, but specifically and lovingly from God? As a loving father, he gives his beloved children every single day enough food for the day. Every calorie you eat, you eat it because God supplied it. Every dollar in your bank account you have because God gave it. Every gift you've been given, God gave you because he loves you. See, let us see the hand of God in our everyday, ordinary provision. Not long from now, we're going to go to lunch and we're going to gather together and eat again. Let us, as we gather together for lunch and sit at the table and have food before us, let us think more thoughtfully about the food God has provided. It didn't come to us generally or thoughtlessly, but it came to us with the care, the precision, and the love of our Heavenly Father. God provides for you daily and graciously because he loves and delights in you. But he doesn't only provide daily, he provides in a deeper way. He provides in this text through his presence. Look at verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Notice what God does in this text. He shows up. Imagine it for a moment. Israel is in the desert. And across the desert sky comes in glorious, terrifying, wonderful power, the cloud of the glory of the Lord with lightning and thunder raining down from it. Here comes the Lord to the people of God. It's an amazing and unbelievable sight. And from the cloud, God speaks to his people. You see, the grumbling people are confronted with the glorious God. We have learned, I think, over the last few years, the difference between communicating with someone at a distance and communicating with someone in person, right? There is a difference between a Zoom birthday party and a real birthday party, right? It's a world of difference because there is a special way you and I communicate when we are face-to-face, isn't there? In a similar way, God wants to get face-to-face with his people. He doesn't send an email. He doesn't hop on Zoom, but he draws near and he draws close to them. We see this beautifully in Exodus 16, but the truth is God comes much closer to us than he came to Israel if we are in Christ. In the gospel of John, it says this, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, Israel saw the glory of God in the cloud. Christians, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has come even closer in the person of Jesus Christ. That's so amazing. And Jesus speaks of how he satisfies us in the most deepest of ways. He satisfies the ultimate deep desires of our heart. He does it a number of ways, but he explains it particularly in this way. He says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does that mean? Jesus says he's the bread of life. 
Well, bread was the staple of the diet in the ancient world. It was the primary source of sustenance. To have bread was to have life. Jesus doesn't say he is the Twinkie of life, right? He's not the candy or whatever, but he is the bread of life. He is the nourishment our souls need. See, the most important way God provides here is not through physical food, but through his presence. More important than the physical nourishment God provides is that he provides through the presence of his son, Jesus Christ. So, to really learn contentment, to become and to have a deepened sense of what it means to be content is this. It's to realize that contentment is not foremost about God giving us good things. It's not about God giving us the temporary things that we often long for, but contentment is God giving us the person our souls were made for. Jesus is the person behind all our desires. In Christ, all the goodness and blessings of God are found. This doesn't mean that Jesus will meet every single one of your wants, but he satisfies the deepest needs of your soul. The deepest desires of your soul are satisfied by the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want peace in a divided world? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Do you want intimacy in a world of distance? Jesus is the person who knows you better than anyone and loves you still. Do you want security in a world that feels increasingly insecure? Jesus promises an imperishable security that we talked about yesterday, right? Imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. That's what Jesus gives. Do you want hope in a world that feels dark? Jesus is the light of the world. Do you want real excitement and joy in a world that often feels trivial? Jesus offers life and it abundantly. God provides through his presence. He provides through Jesus Christ. God provides through his presence. He provides daily. One other thing we need to see about how God provides, and we'll do this briefly, he provides lavishly. Look at verse 16. Gather of it, this is what Moses tells Israel, gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. Notice this, God provides more than they could eat. There is no amount, there's no limit here. There's no amount of food that he's gonna say, no, that's too much. God provides super abundantly. He provides all that they need. This is similar to when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in the gospels. And the text tells us that they had all that they wanted. You see, God doesn't just provide enough to get by. He's not a stingy father just doling out just the bare minimum. But God is a loving, good, generous father who provides lavishly for his beloved children. God does not hold back, but he gives and he gives and he gives until we are satisfied in him. God provides abundantly, God provides through his presence, and God provides daily. But notice in this text that in spite of God's amazing provision, there are some that remain unsatisfied. I want you to notice how the passage ends. This is the last point in your 
text, the choice to be satisfied. Notice that Moses has given an explicit instruction. He says, take only enough for the day. He wants them to trust the Lord today and to wait on the Lord for tomorrow. But notice what happens in verse 20. Some did not listen. They chose to ignore the clear word of God and they stored up extra food for themselves. They did not want to rely on the Lord. They preferred to trust in themselves. They're not satisfied by God's presence. Instead, they preferred to indulge their appetite for temporary things. You see, there are people who refuse to be satisfied with God. If we are going to be satisfied with God, you and I, this morning, we need to make a choice. We must choose to find our satisfaction in God. If you refuse, you will always be looking for the next thing. You will always grumble about what you lack. You'll always find something to complain about. Right? The, the world is filled with this, isn't it? You see it everywhere. Will your eyes always be on to the next thing or will you be eager and ready to appreciate what God has given you? If you refuse to be satisfied in God, you will constantly be unsatisfied by the things of this world. You will consciously be, constantly be anxious about tomorrow. You will be beset by fears and no matter what you have, you will never have enough. Instead, you must choose to be satisfied in God. Choose to be satisfied in God. I put for you a definition of what that looks like on your handout from Jeremiah Burroughs. It's on the top of your outline. It says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. To choose to be content means to submit and delight in God in spite of of our circumstances. Whatever hardship comes our way, we can choose to see the kind, good, fatherly hand of God in every situation. But you're probably wondering, how does this work out practically? What would it look like to choose to be content in God? I want to give you three practicals to take from this session. Three ways to choose to be satisfied in God. The first one is this, and we've touched on it already, but we need to recognize our grumbling and discontentment towards God for what it is. We need to acknowledge that we have an overdeveloped appetite for temporary things. We need to repent before God and ask him to forgive us. We have to repent. We need to recognize and repent. We also need to practice thankfulness. That's the second thing. We need to practice thankfulness. One of the best medicines for the disease of discontentment is thankfulness. Practice daily saying thank you to God for who he is and for what he is doing. Practice saying thank you to God or perhaps grab a pen and paper and write down in a journal or notebook a number of ways in which you can be thankful for what God has given you. Practice thankfulness. Choose to be thankful for the ways God has provided demonstrate generosity. That probably feels like it came out of nowhere. Uh, Follow it with me for a second. I was recently reading through the book of 2 Corinthians, 
I don't know why, but randomly I was reading through it and I was surprised to find in 2 Corinthians a reference to Exodus chapter 16. You see, what's going on in 2 Corinthians is this. The church in Corinth is a very, very wealthy church. They have a lot of money. And there's this famine going on in the world where a number of Christians are suffering and struggling. And Paul is writing 2 Corinthians in part to encourage these wealthy Christians to be generous towards those who are suffering through a famine. Look with me at what he says to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I printed it for you on your handout. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, this is the quote from Exodus, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Surprising, right? I think what Paul is doing here is he's pointing out that generosity is a fruit of a contented heart. You see, a discontented heart is constantly trying to fill itself up with more and more stuff, and it is never satisfied. It never has enough. But the contented heart freely gives, trusting God to provide. Because God has helped you to find contentment in him, you do not need to store up your stuff. You do not need to store up your things, You do not need to store up your time. You do not need to store up your energy. Instead, you can freely give of your time, of your energy, and of your money because you know that God will provide for you. You're not afraid of tomorrow, but you hold on to the God who takes care of you. And because you hold on to him, you can generously give to others. So perhaps this week, practice contented generosity. Give your time to listen to and ask questions of brothers and sisters who are going through something, who have suffering or baggage that they're wrestling with, or who are struggling and battling with a sin. Give your time to them. This summer, perhaps take some of the paycheck you will get from your summer job and give it to a missionary, perhaps, or to a Christian in need of some kind. Give generously out of the contentment you have in God. Choose to be satisfied in God by repenting, by cultivating thankfulness, and by practicing generosity. See, the Hamilton story, it shows us that our hearts are prone to wander, but it also offers us a real hope. You see, after Alexander's adultery is exposed, he is crushed. His wife refuses to speak with him. He has no career prospects whatsoever. No one wants anything to do with him. So he takes walks, he gardens, he plays with his kids, and he goes to church. He's a desperately sad and lonely man. Until one day, he's walking with his wife in the garden, and his wife takes his hand. In that moment, she forgives him. And restores him. Alexander has learned through his pain and through his failures to be satisfied in God. In a similar way, God receives back his adulterous and unsatisfied people. We are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. 
We're prone to crave the temporary things this world has to offer and think that these things will satisfy the longings of our soul. We're prone to stray from the God who brought us out of darkness and into light. Yet God in his kindness woos us back. He provides for us. He forgives us and teaches us to be satisfied in him. God miraculously sustains his discontented people, teaching them daily to depend on him. Would that we were a people satisfied in God. In a world of constant discontentment, in a world where you can find discontentment everywhere, Christians are called to be a radically countercultural people, a people who find satisfaction not in what this world has to offer, but in the God who satisfies. Let's pray. God, we ask and pray that you would help each of us to find a deepened sense of satisfaction and contentment in you, to have that sweet inward frame of mind that submits joyfully to you and to your fatherly care for us, whatever suffering we face. Then there are many suffering and hardships in this room. But God, help us to see in, the, in spite of our challenges and suffering and hardships that you satisfy. Help us to aptly diagnose our own hearts, to see that so often in our own hearts, we crave things that don't satisfy our souls. Forgive us for these things, Lord, we pray. And help us to be a people with a renewed thankfulness, a thankfulness that is shocking to those around us. And I pray in light of this contentment that we would move outward towards others with a spirit of generosity that surprises the world, that we would give freely of our time, of our energy, and of our treasure to be a blessing to those around us. God, would we overflow with contentment to the world around us. I pray, God, that you would make us a people who shine as lights in the darkness with a deepened sense of contentment, a contentment that the world cannot give. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.